You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy with today's special host, Patrick Martin. Happy Friday, everyone, from the land of Lincoln. That was a little uh, Illinois native Dan Fogelberg to get us started. I'm Patrick Martin. We're coming to you live from uh, Chicago, Illinois, with a special edition of the Beltway Briefing focused on the state of Illinois, the land of Lincoln, all things Springfield. I'm joined by two very special guests and colleagues. We've got Darren Collier on the line. Darren's a longtime Illinois lobbyist. Uh, Darren worked for former Illinois Attorney General Jim Ryan as Deputy General Counsel and worked at the Illinois Housing Development Authority. In addition to several years in private practice, he also ran government affairs for CME Group. Matt Glavin has had a long career in politics and government here in Illinois. He started his career with Senator Durbin, our senator, uh, worked for Governor Pat Quinn and ran government affairs at American Water before joining us here at Cozen. Guys, welcome. Let's start uh, with what everyone here is talking about uh, in the state of Illinois, Speaker Madigan. How is the next week or two going to play out? We have a lame duck session, a new session. Matt, kind of set the stage for us here. What what do we need to know? Absolutely. Thanks for um, thanks for having me this morning. So today is the first day of veto session. The House will be in at noon today. Um, they will be starting starting the weekend focused on several initiatives brought by the Black Caucus. But but as you said, the the main story is is Speaker Madigan and the race uh, for leadership in the 102nd General Assembly. The the posturing has already begun. The Democrats in the 102nd General Assembly will have 73 members of their caucus. The uh, Republicans have all said that they will oppose the the Democrats' uh, speaker. So the next Democratic speaker will need 60 Democratic votes. Um, Over the last several weeks, the list of individuals who said they would not be supporting Speaker Madigan has grown. There are now 19 members, which means the speaker, if those 19 stay true and do not vote for Speaker Madigan, uh, the speaker will not have enough votes to become speaker. So there's a lot of posturing. A few folks have announced their candidacy to, uh, to run for speaker, Representative Ann Williams, uh, Representative Kathy Willis, and Representative Steph, um, Stephanie Kifowit have all announced. Um, but the assumption is there are a number of other folks who would be considered if, in fact, Speaker Madigan steps steps away from, from the race. A lot of folks are holding their cards, trying to figure out uh, what will happen when folks caucus on uh, January 12th to, to close the doors and start to hash some of this out uh, in private. That's certainly interesting. It just seems like there's so much kind of unknown. Darren, you've seen a number of these leadership races over the years. You and I have talked about just kind of how it happens uh, behind closed doors. So as Matt said, we got 19 Democrats who said they're not going to vote for Madigan. The Black Caucus has 22 members right now standing firmly behind him. 
if they hold is that, and that we know that's enough to deny anyone else a majority. So how does this play out? Who blinks first? You know, what, what do you think of the dynamics going into uh, to this big meeting? Well, um, that's the million dollar question, um, Patrick. And Matt did, Matt did a great job laying it out. And just to add a little more color to that, you know, you have the Latino caucus who already, who, along with the Black caucus, endorsed the speaker as well. Uh, he met with the Women's Caucus yesterday, and he's meeting with the, uh, I guess we can call them the Moderate Caucus today. So, you know, he has the Black Caucus and the Latino Caucus already on board. Uh, he, along with Representative um, uh, Williams and Willis, spoke to the Women's Caucus yesterday. Um, just the rumors that came out of there was that, you know, obviously the speaker who's been doing this 40 years, you know, did a good job. And so did uh, Representative Williams. And, you know, coming out of that, Representative, Representative Williams came away with maybe nine to 10 votes, you know, but, you know, it's all fluid. And how does it play out? I mean, wow, that's, you know, again, that's going to be the, the question that we're, that we're all dealing with. The speaker's not going to be able to get to 60, but no one else is either. And at some point, does the speaker release his people to let them say, you know what, go ahead and, and, and elect somebody else for the good of the state? Or does he continue to just hold on? You know, we, we have some history here in Illinois back in 75, 76, when the last time we had a speaker battle that was worth it, that, that, that was, you know, of this stature that, you know, they went through like 130 some odd ballots, you know. So, yeah. And, you know, because you have to keep going until you get 60 or someone concedes says, you know what, I release my votes to somewhere else. So right now we could, and with the um, idea of the pandemic still around, you know, once we get out of lame duck and if we don't come back in session, we're, we can, you know, be faced with a situation where we're speakerless going until the next time they meet again face to face. So, Yeah. And Patrick, Darren, I think brought up two really good points. One is, I think it's, I think most of our, our listeners know this, right? But the last time we had um, a fight like this, Speaker Madigan, of course, was was there, right? He was part of this, right? So, you know, he's been speaker since 1983 for uh, all except for for two years when the Republicans had control. But um, but the other the other really interesting thing that as if this situation needed any more complication is, you know, typically they would meet uh, the Democratic caucus would meet physically in a closed door room and, and hash this out. And, you know, people it's a lot easier to do than it is right. to do on a Zoom call, right? So, right. And, and we don't know how that meeting's going to happen, but as you're that, trying, yeah. That's just your point. Think about it. This is the first time they've all met face-to-face since May. So, yep. you, know, it's, it, you know, it's real easy to tell your colleagues, hey, no, you know, go screw yourself, and I'm not voting for this guy or that guy over Zoom or over, you know, a, a, a conference call. But this is the first time they've all been in a room together since um, um, the uh, end of session in May. So. Let me ask you guys this. How how big a factor is, is you're looking at kind of the 19 who have announced that, that they're not going to vote for the speaker. You're looking at uh, those who are supporting the speaker. I mean, a lot of these 19, it appears to me from just kind of reading, these are, there's some newer members. You know, this is the first time they've been in sort of a high stakes situation like this. Speaker Madigan has been doing this for decades. How does that impact kind of how this shakes out, just the experience of having been through something like this before. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Darren. Yeah, I think it can work. Patrick, I think you're on a really uh, pertinent point. 
Um, the fact that some of these members are new and and a lot of these a lot of these newer members don't owe the speaker. You know, um, you know, you have people like Representative the newly uh, appointed Representative, well, elected Representative Margaret Croak, Representative Evadina Delgado. They kind of ran against the speaker's candidates and yeah. won. So you know, I'm 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 of the opinion, and I you know would love to hear Matt's, but I'm of the opinion that those 19 are pretty staunch where they are, and you know it would be more detrimental to them politically to turn back than it would be to continue ahead. Yeah, you know, um, you know, their um, uh, uh, anti-speaker rhetoric. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's right on. I mean, the the speaker needs six of these 19 to flip back to him, right? Uh, that I, I'm, I'm looking at the list now. I see a few um, who I think he, I, I think I see the, the, the names that he's going to be targeting, but <laughs> but um, there's no doubt it's an uphill battle, right? The, the, the second one of these folks flips back to supporting the speaker is the second they have a primary opponent yeah. um, who will have uh, not necessarily the traditional deep pockets and, you know, labor is standing behind the speaker, but um, it, they will be opening themselves up to a media storm. Uh, the the press is obviously, especially the Tribune will, would tear somebody apart who, who said they were not voting for the speaker and then, and then flipped. Now, now I think the speaker is trying to make the argument of, you know, give, give me one more, one more turn in the chair, right? We have, this is going to be a really hard term for the speaker. We have a massive budget deficit due to COVID and due to the, the fair tax failing. We uh, are the next leaders are going to have to draw three maps, right? The state legislature map, the congressional map, and likely a judicial map. So there is a lot of heavy work. And I think the speaker's argument is going to be, is this really the right time to put somebody new in the chair, wouldn't you rather have me there to finish up this work and then, and then leave? And yeah, again, I don't know how that's going to be received, but I, I think that's his best message. Yeah. Let me and go out on my own terms. On, yeah. yeah. He's also sitting on a 9% approval rating throughout the state. So you yeah. know, there, there is no upside to you, turn, you know, uh, turning back from your anti-speaker uh, um, vote right now, you know, or, or, or stance. There's just no upside to it. You know, uh, the only district he's running positive in is his own. So, yeah. and, you know, the Republican, uh, the last Republican governor uh, did a fantastic job of just, you know, selling the Madigan brand and name. You know, he spent a large part of his wealth, a large part of his campaigns doing that and finally caught up to the speaker. Matt, it feels like no matter how this all kind of shakes out at the end of the day, that that one thing for certain is that change is is coming to Springfield, either in the form of new leadership or just a new way of doing business. And I mean that in a couple different ways. You've got COVID sort of changing the way that companies are able to, to do advocacy right now with everything being remote. And also a new way of doing business just in the state. I mean, we have all seen on the cover, uh, front page of every newspaper, uh, you know, we followed sort of the investigation of Commonwealth Edison. We followed the Me Too uh, scandal that kind of rocked uh, Springfield. How do you see the environment changing in the capital? Um, and, and what should companies be expecting this year as they're looking to 
to kind of have their voices heard and, and make their case and, and highlight their, their priorities. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point is that no matter what things are changing, whether, whether the speaker's in the chair or not, um, if I, I, we have a huge number of new members and, and this is not replacing members with somebody who was pretty close to their predecessor. Uh, both chambers are becoming younger, are becoming more diverse, are becoming more progressive. And, uh, and, and they're the, I think there's a stronger desire for many of them to uh, start pushing a more progressive agenda. Uh, DC, uh, Patrick, where you spend most of your time is, you know, not, we haven't seen a whole lot of action at the federal level for a number of years. So states and cities have become the battleground for um, progressive ideas, minimum wage, fair scheduling. Um, and I think we're going to see that ramp up. The, the speaker has, um, I think, done a uh, has, has, I think the speaker has seen his role of kind of reining people in. And uh, the other dynamic here is just geography, right? One thing Speaker Madigan did very well was manage a caucus that ran from Waukegan at the north to, you know, Cairo, Illinois, you know, 800 miles south, <laughs> right? Uh, those are very different places. And they used to have Democrats everywhere. So it was the speaker's job to make sure that he was protecting all of his members. Uh, frankly, we don't have as many downstate Democrats. So the, the, the reason given to the progressive caucus of we can't do what you want because it's going to endanger these more conservative downstate Democrats is just not there. So it's going to be harder to push back on that. So, Darren, how how do you see the environment changing? You've been doing this. You, you know, you and I talk all the time about just how this business is changing. You've been like Matt, you know, on the inside advocating for a company. You've also been been on the outside advocating for for clients. How, how do you see the advocacy environment changing, given all these things we're talking about uh, right well, now? If you, well, if you had told me a year ago that Don Harmon would be the stabilizing force. In uh, Illinois politics, I would have like um, bet you a lot of money and lost a lot of it. <laughs> um, I would. I mean, but right now, Don Harmon has consolidated, uh, and, 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 and Don is that next generation politician. Um, he's a, he's a generation younger than um, prior uh, Senate president and the Speaker, and uh, he's come in uh, after a really tough um, Senate president race that he um, came in as the underdog in and won. And he's consolidated power. I mean, and you see it with the retirements of people. And with that, you know, I, I know, you know, Matt, you know, talked about the speaker and how he does business. But Don uh, has made sure the Senate has been a moderating force where you can go and get things actually done. You know, he's been very open to new businesses coming in, to you coming in with to to lobbyists coming in with clients, and and being and, and, and having a platform to discuss new ideas. So, I mean, he's done a really good job of moderating, you know, the, the progressive um, progressives mindset while still trying to be pro-business enough so Illinois doesn't fall behind in that respect. So, yeah, that is no easy task. We've, we've, we've certainly been impressing him doing it. Incredible. We've been talking about, you know, Illinois politics here for like 15 minutes. We haven't even mentioned uh, our governor, Governor Pritzker. He's entering, you know, his re-election cycle. Uh, and from my read of it, and I want to I want to get your guys' take, but from my read, it, it seems like his first two years, 
has really been like a tale of two sessions or a tale of two two different years. You know, 2019 historic. You had cannabis, uh, adult use legalization, gaming, a host of other historic pieces of legislation passed. You know, many said, uh, Darren, Matt, we talked about it, maybe the most productive uh, legislative session in decades in the state of Illinois. Uh, after a, a huge sort of, you know, log jam of activity uh, under the rounder years, then 2020 hits. Uh, COVID, managing a pandemic, a shutdown, stay-at-home orders, um, widely unpopular in certain parts of the state. Session basically gets canceled. You know, you've got a year uh, that, that you're not able to legislate in an ordinary way. And, it, and then the year ends with him losing at the ballot box on his number one priority, uh, the fair tax. So, Matt, how does the political outlook look for the governor as 2021 kicks off? And, and what do you kind of set the stage for me on what his team is thinking about as we're entering this 22 cycle? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you set the stage really well. It, it, he, the governor has a lot of challenges, right? I think he... I think managing the pandemic has been his top priority. And frankly, I think he's done a good job. I think he's done what needed to be done, even when it was unpopular in, in certain areas. Um, I think he's stated that that's where that's his top priority. Um, and I think he's going to keep falling back on that. But as you said, the fair tax is it was a huge failure. And I, mean, I think if you look at DuPage, you know, Democrats uh, care. You know, Biden won DuPage County by, I think, 15 points, and Fairtax lost by about 15 points. So you have this massive swing, um, and the governor is going to have to figure out how to navigate that. I think his best chance of of success is riding the tide of things turning. Right? If if we're sitting here a year from now. And the vaccination is distributed and schools are open and businesses are open and we're all working from our office instead of working from home and we're, and we're returning to normal. That's a very different scenario than if we're still dragging out this pandemic um, and, and people are, you know, just have all this resentment, whether it's being, whether it's fair to be placed on the governor or not, it's falling at his feet. And those first few months, people were scared and they were looking for leadership and the governor was giving it to them. And now I think they're just tired. And, and it's not that it's JB's fault, but they're tired of the lockdown. They're tired of the pandemic. And if somebody else is out there, um, I, I think it's going to be a tough race. And Darren, I'll let you kind of talk about some of the the possible opponents. I mean, we, we've we've seen... Uh, certain people who are already showing their cards that, that they're interested in um in a run against the governor. So yeah, Matt, let me let me just mention that. one thing you just said, oh, yeah. which was really interesting. DuPage, I mean, you I think you just hit it on the head, and it's a great transition to kind of potential opponents. I mean, Biden wins by 15 points where I live, you know, and and just done work with DuPage. We we know the area really well. Um, you know, this is this was old school Illinois Republican territory when we were all growing up. Yeah. You have you have a 15 point win for Biden, which I think shows a couple things. One, the suburbs out here getting younger and more diverse. But two, just an aversion to President Trump that that was that you've seen in suburbs all across the country. But then the fair tax loses by a huge margin. And, and, and that's a big question is, you know, voters in the suburbs, they don't like Trump. 
but they don't like Madigan and Illinois politics as usual either. And, you know, they, is there going to be some kind of coming home at some point? Darren, you've worked for Republicans who've won statewide. And even in the midst of a pandemic and a difficult economic environment, you know, we are in Illinois, right? Democrats are the majority party here. You got an incumbent governor with an unlimited war chest. Can a Republican win statewide in Illinois right now? And, and how do they do it? Well, so the last Republican to win statewide other than Bruce Rauner was Mark Kirk. And Mark Kirk was the quintessential uh, Illinois Republican. He yep. was from the North Shore. Uh, he was a moderate. I mean, Mark was pro, was, 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 was a pro-choice Republican. And that's always kind of been the, um, kind of been the blueprint of how you win in Illinois as a Republican. Uh, in DuPage County, I still think Republicans can win DuPage County. But think about it. The county board is all, is, is, has, majority, has majority Democrats now. You know, so, you know, that it's that, incredible, that, incredible. I mean, again, we all grew up. You could count on when I was running Republican campaigns, working Republican campaigns, you can count on 75 percent um, Republican um, voter, you know, and DuPage. Now it's, you know, it's represented. It's, it's represented by Sean Caston and people like that. You know, it's it's, it's just incredible. Um but, you know, it, it looks like Adam Kinzinger, like, listen, no one's going to uh, primary the governor. You know, he's, he's you know, too, too big of a war chest. Fools, know. Aaron. No way. Yeah, that happens, that's, right? yeah, yeah, you know, that's, you know, Don Quixote. Um, but, you know, you see with the remap and you hear the uh, Rodney Davises, the Adam Kinzingers, the Darren LaHoods speaking up if they get remapped into a, um, primary with one of their colleagues that, you know, they'll look at statewide office then. And is that statewide office the governor's office? Is it, is it uh, against Tammy Duckworth? We have a Senate seat up as well. You know, so Kinzinger, as we see, has been positioning himself um, in D.C. to be the anti-Trump. And, but, but will that work in the new Illinois? You know, that may get him suburban votes, but what does that do for him downstate? That's you the know? big question here, guys, right? Which is, I mean, we used to talk about this, uh, you know, someone we all know in national politics, Pete Buttigieg, one state over a guy, you know, I always say all dressed up. Does he have anywhere to go statewide? Adam Kitzinger, all dressed up. He's got his suit on, tie tied. The reporters are covering him. He seems like a man who is ready to go. What, Matt, what is his path in, in this Illinois? Well, I, I, that, that's the million dollar question, right? And I mean, we, we, we only have to look to the last Republican primary, right? Bruce Rauner, his primary race against Jeannie Ives was way too close, right? I mean, it was right. as, as an incumbent yeah. or as an incumbent governor to almost lose to Jeannie Ives, who, you know, is... Um, we would consider her the fringe at one point. The right? fringe, thank you. I was trying to find the right yeah. word yeah. to use that was not too disrespectful. But yeah, fringe, right? I mean, she is harnessing, she, she is a Trump Republican. The right? grassroots populist part of that party yeah. Yeah. is not looking to compromise and be moderate and, yeah. and kind of centrist, right? I mean, the, and, and of course, the the double-edged sword is how do you win a Republican primary and then win a general, right? Um, and you have to be two entirely different candidates. And Kinzinger's best hope is a crowded primary, right? Yeah. If Jeannie Ives and Darren Bailey and Mancow, you know, are all running for governor, and he's the moderate. And if he can convince some of the large Republican donors, I mean, if he's sitting on $50 million running against three, you know, candidates 
far to his right, um, that that's his path, right? And the, the question, not only in DuPage, but in suburbs all over the country is, what happens to those suburban women and suburban voters who have trended to Democrats, right? I mean, I, I feel like the Democrats are going to have a much harder time regaining the folks they lost in rural areas than the Republicans will regaining folks in the suburbs. Uh, we saw that with the fair tax numbers, right? This was not a huge fundamental shift in ideology. This was an aversion to President Trump. So what happens when there's a Republican talking about things that they want to hear, just talking about taxes, talking about cleaning up Illinois' pension. Um, we don't we don't know, but that's that's what Kinzinger has to do. He has to hope to divide the 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 right uh, the for the right fringe and hope that he can coalesce enough of those kind of Main Street Chamber of Commerce Republicans. Yeah, and we'll have to listen to his rhetoric. I mean, Darren, we've been talking, you know, he's obviously in Congress now, so the Trump, the, the kind of positioning on Trump. That sure sounds like a guy who's running for the U.S. Senate. We have a seat up in 2022, Tammy Duckworth, our senator. I mean, his messaging is not <laughs> Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, the shutdown orders, we need to get Illinois working again. It's focused on federal, national messaging. And that could just be the time uh, that we're in because I, I just Trump is just sucks up all the oxygen on anything. But I mean, that's what I'm hearing from the messaging. Darren, what 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 are you hearing? Exactly the same thing, Patrick. He, he does not sound like a guy who's looking to come back in state and run for the governorship. He looks like he's got his eyes on his target if he makes that move set on Tammy Duckworth. That's, you know, I think he may think that, you know, he can build a coalition in the state to beat her. Not th those messages don't sound like a message for somebody who wants to come back and govern in the state of Illinois. You know, yeah. I agree with you guys, but if you, um, you know, I'm sure you've seen polling numbers too, and the Tammy Duckworth's numbers are are just anyway, beating Tammy Duckworth is going to be a lot harder than beating J.D. Pritzker in two years. I think, you know, who knows? The world could be, sure. Sure. Um, but Tammy's a very hard candidate to beat at this point. You, well, you make a good, you point. make a great point there. I mean, running, you know, when you run statewide, if you're of the party that is, you know, the minority party in your state, running for governor, all things being equal, running for governor is a little easier than running for the Senate, right? I mean, we've seen a lot of, uh, blue state Republican governors and some red state Democratic governors. Look at states like Kentucky, Massachusetts. Yep. I mean, you can name a million of them. The, the Senate, for whatever reason, Darren, we talk about this all the time. I mean, yep. these federal races have become so much more nationalized and partisan. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Kinsinger right now is not fitting into whatever the Republican narrative is uh, on a national level. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. To say the least. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's actually outside the mainstream of Republican narrative right now. He's um, outside of what a lot of Democrats have called for. Right. <laughs> so they so, called the 25th Amendment yesterday, right? Yeah. Question to both of you guys, just a kind of final note to, to end on. And I want to, I you know, take it sort of high level. Something I think, you know, those of us who have, have lived in this state for a long time, you know, we pay taxes here. We raise our families here. We want Illinois to, I, I just speak for myself and Matt, we've talked about this. I want Illinois to be the type of place it was when, when I grew up and or the way I thought of it. And it's not to say it was perfect uh, then, but you want, it to, you want it to be the type of place where I can raise my family here. My kids want to come back here. Um, and that seems kind of 
hokey and cheesy or whatever, but with, you know, so many people moving out of state, it's something I think about a lot. We, we all choose to live here because and we want it to do well. You know, something I just pick up on increasingly talking to people, you know, in my neighborhood, um, you know, friends who maybe aren't as politically interested, you know, people are just increasingly every year a little more cynical about politics generally, but especially in the state of Illinois. And, and to put a finer point on it, people just seem cynical about the prospect that Illinois can address our biggest challenges. People just don't believe that the state is capable of, of addressing some of these things, whether it's budget-related, pension-related, uh, and even just our tone and the way, the way we, we all treat each other. What do, you, what do you guys think that people in this state want and expect from our leaders here? And what are they looking for in this, in this next new year after a rough 2020? What are they hoping for in 2021? And I'll, Darren, I'll kick it to you first. Yeah, I, I, it's a great question, Pat. I think the first thing that people in the state want is they want the state to handle its finances in a way where they think they can affordably raise a family here. I mean, let's be honest. If you live in the city or you live in the collar counties, especially the close collar counties, um, Illinois can be pretty expensive. It seems like a really high end. People don't think they're getting the bang for their tax dollars, <laughs> you know, um, so I, I think the number one thing would be, you know, um, stewarding their tax dollars in a much in a much better way. I think people are more than willing to pay for the services. They, they just don't think they're getting the um, getting what they actually are paying for in their taxes Two people. People want to end corruption. They think this is a corrupt political state. So, you know, and I think one and two go together. You know, um, you, you're taxing me to death and you're also corrupt. You know, and it could be a one-off corruption. I mean, 98.8% of the politicians aren't corrupt. But when you have, you know, you, you, you live in a major market like this, you have two major newspapers, and there's, you know, a history of corruption. You know, the, the comment thing is another thing to make people go, oh, they're lining their own pockets. They're lining their own pockets at the expense of me. You know, so um, I, I think those are the top two things that would give Illinoisans a much better uh, uh, sense and a much better you know, okay, my politicians and my and my and and and, and the and, and my government is working for me. Those things right there, I think every Illinois feels that whether they did whether they're D or R, they feel that, and I think that's the major thing they talk about. Matt, what are what are people looking for this year? <clears throat> yeah, I, I think that Darren <clears throat> hit the nail on the head. The, the other things that I'll add um, is that you know we spent four years with with Governor Rauner. I mean, from where I was sitting, he he was betting against Illinois, right? It was four years of Illinois is horrible. Illinois is horrible. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. But I, I don't think that was helpful, right? I mean, when, when we're in Springfield, I, I think that if everyone in the state spent a few days in Springfield and watched how Democrats and Republicans work together, they would be shocked, right? I mean, the, the thought for the man on the street is that, we that Democrats and Republicans hate each other and and they're you know just one second away from having a fist fight. And that's not the case, right? I mean, we're we're talking, we're talking about ideas over coffee and it's uh over drinks, over dinner, and there's legitimate disagreements for sure. But there's not universal dislike of one another, and there's a lot of common ground. And Patrick, to the point that that you made, um a little while ago, we saw that in the governor's first session last year. 
people were working together. I mean, standing on the rail, we saw Republican leaders and Republican business groups walk out of the governor's office smiling ear to ear. They were negotiating. They were cutting deals. It wasn't what anybody wanted, but they were moving the ball forward. They were making incremental progress, accomplishing their goals. And I think more than anything, that's what people want. They want to elect people to go to Springfield and do work. They don't want people tweeting. They're tired of the rhetoric at the national level. They're tired of the rhetoric at the state level. They don't want finger pointing. They want people to roll up their sleeves and do some work. And they know they're not going to get what they want, but they want people to put their nose down, work hard, and try to make Illinois just a little bit better every day. And and hopefully, I mean, I'm an optimist, uh, but uh, but 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 I think we can do it. And and I'm I'm hopeful that the events of this week maybe have reset the clock for some folks, um, and and just you know highlighted that that the time to actually do some work uh, is here. So we'll we'll see. We'll we'll find out in about an hour and a half when uh, when they go into session. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap it up. Matt, Darren, this has been an incredibly interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to to doing this again with you guys. We got a really exciting, interesting year ahead in Illinois. A big thanks to our chairman and CEO, Mark Alderman, Howard Schweitzer, for giving me the mic and allowing special edition of the Beltway Briefing uh, to focus on the land of Lincoln, state of Illinois. Guys, uh, thanks so much, and we'll look forward to doing it again soon. Yep, thanks, Matt. Thank you. You're listening to the Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy with today's special host, Patrick Martin. Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago, Chicago, I will And show we you are back home. thanks to uh, that I nice meeting from Old Blue Eyes to talk a little Deep dish Chicago style politics. I am joined here on the special edition of the Beltway Briefing by two colleagues who know Chicago, know City Hall, can give us some perspective on what is happening behind the curtain in a city uh, that, as we all know, is known for its politics. Uh, John Dunn is a longtime City Hall insider uh, and lawyer lobbyist. John, I don't know if anyone refers to you as uh, the 51st alderman, but I thought maybe I'd try and make that a thing. I'm more of a a ward superintendent than than an alderman. John was one of uh, Mayor Daley's closest aides and advisors. He ran his Springfield team um, and also served as his head of of intergovernmental and political affairs. Also joined by uh, my colleague and friend, Patrick Carey. Patrick has spent a number of years at City Hall uh, before going into private practice. He worked uh, in the mayor's office uh, and also worked for Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle. Guys, welcome. Uh, let's just dig right in. There is so much happening in the city of Chicago. Mayor Lori Lightfoot, um, a first-time political candidate. She took the Chicago political world by storm. She's got about a year and a half or so under her belt, you know, and she's faced no shortage of challenges. It's been just a difficult uh, political environment. John, how would you grade the mayor and her team so far? So, so far, um you know, I, I don't know, maybe a B. It is the first year and a half in office. Um, I think some of the critics overlook what it w- was like for anybody's first year in office, whether that's Lori Lightfoot or Rahm Emanuel or Rich Daly or Barack Obama or anybody else. So I think that first year is tough. Um, 
we'll see what happens with the with the uh, road ahead. I don't know what uh, what Pat thinks about his grade would be. So I'm in the same. I'm in the same ballpark as John. I'd give her about a B plus. I think the mayor knew she was signing up for a very difficult job when she ran for office, uh, given the state of the city's finances, but that was all pre COVID. So she got thrown a, a, a large curveball in the form of a global pandemic um, that I know we'll talk more about, you know, before the end of her first year in office. So I think she's been managing through a situation that was even more difficult than she expected uh, when she first announced her candidacy now several years ago. Yeah, Pat, that's a great point. I mean, I I think as we're looking at whether it's Mayor Lightfoot, you know, any sort of elected official, you know, if you're kind of grading their performance, you can sort of grade it a little bit on a curve given just the unprecedented nature of of COVID-19. You've been super active in following, you know, the pandemic and specifically the impact it's having on the city, on the budget, it feels like we're definitely entering a period of fiscal austerity with with no bailout from the feds in sight, although maybe that'll change given the, the Georgia Senate races. Uh, you know, how does Chicago grapple with all of this? What what are you sort of seeing as you're as you're looking at the big picture? So Mayor Lightfoot uh, passed her budget uh, for the 2021 fiscal year in December. Uh, she passed it by a 29 to 21 vote, uh, which is uh, one of the closest budget votes for Mayor of Chicago in recent history. And uh, the budget was severely impacted uh, by the pandemic. The the city, you know, estimates as much as you know 900 million dollars of revenue loss is directly attributable to the virus and the the public health measures and related shutdowns that have been put into effect. And in order to balance that, you know, she had to rely on some really politically unpopular measures, including, you know, a half a billion dollars of borrowing and debt restructuring um, and an almost hundred billion dollar property tax increase, which is often referred to as the third rail of Chicago politics. Now, she got all that through and the, the budget does not rely on any additional help from Washington. So if, if that doesn't end up coming through, you know, they'll they'll go with the budget that they approved. Um, but I think you know the mayor and the members of the city council um, are 100% looking at the new dynamic in D.C. and hoping that when President Biden, President-elect Biden, takes office and, and once you know Chuck Schumer becomes majority leader, that the the next round of COVID relief will include funding for state and local governments, and that will allow the city to um, potentially not not take advantage of all the borrowing authority they have, which is, you know, really uh, becomes very costly in the, in the out years. So I know they'll be uh, hoping and expecting that that they'll be able to get funding that they've been, you know, looking for, for, you know, coming up on six months to, to a little more than that now. John, you've been a part of, you know, many budget negotiations over the years between the mayor, the city council, you know, to someone on the outside, this seems like this would be like the ultimate kind of political sausage making exercise. I'm sure there's just a ton of give and take. You know, we all uh, read that the council approved the mayor's budget in November, but it, it wasn't without a lot of back and forth. Talk to us a little bit, kind of playing off what Pat said, how that process played out. And, and what did we learn about the key players that can be instructive as we're looking at what future negotiations might look like. Yeah, so it's, um, like Pat said, it was uh, 29-21 on the budget. The, the property tax vote was actually 28-22. You need 26 votes to pass something through city council. So it was a very, very thin um, margin. I mean, 
there's been a lot of coverage about um, Mayor Lightfoot's relations with the city council. And, um, you know, we can get into that. She's had uh, some, some difficult relationships with, uh, with some of the council members. But at the end of the day, when, you know, when push came to shove, she passed the budget. And um, she passed that budget by sitting down and talking to uh, members of the council, including the Black Caucus and including the Latino Caucus. So, um, you know, I mean, I think that's probably a good sign for for her and for the city that the council was able to come together and pass the budget. Now, if you want to take a negative view of it, you go back and look at, at like Pat said, the, the vote totals. It was a very thin margin. Um, so we'll see what happens this year. But one last sort of overall budget comment too is, you know, Chicago's in sort of a, a, um, a, a tougher position than a lot of other big cities because the state of Illinois is in such a tough position. So the state of Illinois is in no position to help out Chicago. And in fact, the state of Illinois has uh, been engaged in trying to claw back money from cities. So it's sort of a double whammy on Chicago. Um, and then the pension payment, which is statutorily mandated by Springfield, goes up every year. And this year it goes up exponentially. So uh, there's a lot of um, uh, back and forth between Chicago and Springfield that makes it uh, makes it even more difficult. Yeah, John, you brought up a great point. Just, you know, kind of those of us who follow this, reading the newspapers, watching the, you know, the five o'clock news that it, it, it's been reported, you know, the mayor and the city council have had kind of an interesting relationship. Maybe we can say it's an evolving uh, relationship. Pat, do you expect that negotiations with the city council are going to get easier or more challenging? Do you, do you feel like people are going to get more dug in over time? Um, or did the key players learn maybe a little bit more about each other and their negotiating styles this time around where, where maybe things can get a little easier next time? What's your take? I, I, I tend to, to look more towards the latter of, um, as all the parties involved understand what the dynamic is, you know, between the mayor and the city council, um, they will sort of settle into some patterns of understanding how those negotiation works. You know, for a long time, you know, there's been this criticism of the Chicago city council as a rubber stamp, uh, both under Mayor Daly and Mayor Emanuel. Um, and that was really a reflection of those mayors, you know, taking us a, uh, a leadership role and, and a council that was looking for that leadership. I think the current council is more interested in collaborating with the mayor's office as, a, as opposed to just sort of picking up whatever the mayoral initiative might be and running with it. Um, we talked a little bit about the closeness of the budget vote. You know, there was also another uh, vote, a big vote last year early in the uh, pandemic to, to grant the mayor a certain emergency powers. Uh, that me that measure also passed by a, a 29 to 21 vote, um, but it was a different 29 and a different 21. So if you look at the two votes together, kind of probably the two most important votes of 2020 for Mayor Lightfoot, you have uh, 30 members of the city council that voted against her on one or both of those initiatives. So as John said, you need 26 votes to pass something in the council. So you have 30 members who will vote against you, you know, at least occasionally. It just proves the point that you need to look at building coalitions of the willing, and those are going to depend, you know, very much on what the issues of the day are. And the, the mayor can't rely on sort of a set block of 26 votes anymore. That's not an option that's available to her. So it's going to require her and her team to, to really dive in and, and work collaboratively to, to build up different um, 
bases of support. And I think they did um, a good job of that in the budget. Ultimately, uh, almost the entire Black Caucus voted for the budget, and that was a result of negotiations you know, initiated by the mayor and her team. And, and many of those Black Caucus members have voted against her in the past. So I, I view that as a, um, a sign of things to come more than an, an anomaly. Yeah, that's fascinating. So uh, we talked about it a little bit. It is impossible to have a discussion about politics at any level without without just a a real focus on on COVID nineteen on on this pandemic and particularly in cities. I mean, just just the scale and scope of what we've seen has been extraordinary. You know, I think we all agree the city of Chicago is incredibly challenging six to twelve months ahead. Uh, getting these vaccines distributed, getting kids back to school. Uh, a question to both of you, what do you imagine are going to be the really big pressure points here? And and then a second question, what isn't getting enough attention? What complicating factor uh, is just not really getting reported enough? Uh, John, I'll go to you first. Um, I'm, I'm going to take I'm going to tackle the um, the second one um, first. What's not getting covered is um, and it's COVID related. I mean, the, the, the three big drivers for the Chicago economy are uh, the airports, downtown and McCormick Place. And um, I, I think those three, and there are lots of other areas, but those three areas I think are critically important um, to Chicago, to Illinois, and to the region. And um, it's no secret that the, the airport traffic is down a lot. I, I think people focus on the airlines and they're having their issues because uh, traffic is down so much. But that affects um, – the airlines affect the airports, affects the concessionaires, but it affects the city itself. It affects the region. So that um, getting the airports back up and running um, at full capacity, which probably is not going to happen in 2021, um, I, I think that's going to continue to have a drag on Chicago's economy. Same thing with McCormick Place. Um, McCormick Place is a huge driver of the Chicago and regional economy, and it's basically been closed um, because of COVID. And not only is it, I mean, you could solve COVID tomorrow um, and you still wouldn't have conventions because conventions have to be booked out in advance. So you have conventions probably not through 2021, but pretty soon through the end of 2021 that will be canceled. So that is um, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in in revenue not coming into Chicago through this year and I'll probably spill into next year. And then downtown with the um, with the violence this summer, we just saw that uh, Macy's is pulling out a water tower. Um, retail was having issues before COVID hit. And now because of the lack of um, people shopping in, in retail stores, combined with some of the violence we saw last summer, um, that's a big problem. So I would say those, th- those are three big drivers that maybe aren't being covered um, uh, as much as I think they should be. And I'll let Pat, Pat tackle issue number one. So, yeah, I, I want to first kind of dovetail um, off of some points that John made. And so much of it comes back to, to COVID-19 and the pandemic and how the, the city is trying to, um, you know, take its fight to the virus, you know, with what had been, you know, such a huge backing of leadership from the federal government. Obviously, everyone is hopeful um, that that will start to change once the Biden administration comes into office. But you've already seen the mayor you know, out publicly just the week we're recording this, um, calling on the federal government to, to give Chicago more vaccine, because that's what it all comes down to. So much of what John touched on you know, requires those vaccine doses to get into the arms of Chicago residents. Um, 
to allow you know those parts of the economy, particularly the tourism dependent parts, to come back, and, and that's just such a huge revenue driver for the city. But all these issues are so intertwined, and the city has tried to do what it can to to lead, and and has done a, a comparatively good job on getting the vaccine doses it has you know administered and, and not sitting in freezers. But there's just there's just so much more. Um, that needs to be done on that, and and that I think is going to be the the big story going forward of um, of 2021, and and I think what 2021 will look like. Yeah. Um, they, as far as other, yeah, go ahead, Pat. Just uh, getting kids back to school. The other thing I was going to ask you too is you're talking about vaccines getting distributed, and you know, big cities. I'm sure more than anyone else have got to be terrified. Uh, about this new strain of COVID that appears to be far more contagious um, in highly concentrated areas like Chicago. I mean, just as we're feeling like we may be getting close to the other side of this thing, it seems like the worst possible uh, combination of factors is all happening at the same time. How do you think that's going to impact things? So I, I think what I was going to say about you know things that maybe aren't getting uh, as much attention as they should uh, it interconnects with that and also interconnects with what John was saying about the the unrest that we experienced over the summer and that's the the real estate market in downtown Chicago. If you look at the real estate market in the Chicago region overall, um, you're seeing a pretty hot market with low inventory. But if you drill down into you know the downtown area, the Loop, Michigan Avenue areas that were really impacted hard um, by the unrest over the summer, um, you see, you know, inventory at, at historic highs. And, you know, the loop has been a huge driver and in increased population, in part offsetting some population decrease in other parts of the city. You know, ultimately, if Chicago continue, continues to see an outflow of population, that just makes all these issues that much harder um, that much harder to address and that much harder to solve when there's less people in the city, that's less people to bear the tax burden, that's less people to fund city services. And it just makes all these problems um, that much more, that much more challenging. Yeah. John, uh, to touch on something we've talked a little bit about, you know, you've, you've dealt with a lot of labor negotiations with the city. I mean, we're all watching every night on the news, uh, you know, the coverage of, of this overarching question of, of kids going back to school. You know, we lived through the, the teacher strike. Uh, there's been a lot of back and forth between CPS and CTU. Just color for us kind of some of the factors that are being considered there and, and how you think politically, you know, this, this kind of plays out. Well, I mean, so keep in mind that um, CTU has been very politically active for, for, years for decades, and that in the uh, mayoral election of 2019, the CTU backed Tony Preckwinkle uh, against Mayor Lightfoot. Uh, so that was sort of bad blood from the, from the, from the beginning. Um, and then there was a teacher strike um, that made things worse on, on both sides. So there's, there's a history there. Where, we at, where we're at currently is um, Mayor Lightfoot and the Board of Ed uh, um, you know, announced a reopening plan for Chicago public schools now in January, and CTU's been against it. Um, so it's a tough issue. I mean, I think, um, you know, CTU has some points. I mean, pe teachers want to be safe. On the other hand, there seems to be some evidence and some data suggesting that um, you can do it safely. So it, it's it's bound up. It's a, it's a, somebody's going to write a great book about it because you've got kids and you've got uh, big city politics and you've got health issues. And, um, you know, the mayor was doing a press conference today about it. I'm not sure exactly what is um, what's being announced today, but it's um, 
I mean, it's an ongoing issue right now as we speak. A, a lot of teachers did not come back to school this week. So uh, that's something they're going to have to figure out. Yeah, guys, I, I want to pivot a little bit here and talk about, you know, something, uh, Pat, you touched on a little earlier, but, um, you know, the, the evolving conversation in Chicago and, and really nationally around race, police brutality, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you know, the mayor team faced some criticism over the handling of the video footage of a, a highly controversial police raid. And as we enter a new year, how do you guys think that issues around race are going to shape broader reform and policy discussions happening at City Hall? Um, would love to, to get your thoughts. And Pat, I'll start with you. Sure. So I think there, there are two big issues um, that are uh, hanging over um, City Hall right now on the kind of police community relations front and, and you know, the issues of racial justice more broadly. Uh, one, as you, you alluded to, is, is the, the case of the, the, this botched search warrant that, that actually happened before Mayor Lightfoot took office, but has only recently come to public light. And there's been, you know, quite a bit of fallout around that. And then that sort of dovetails and connects to the second issue, which is uh, civilian oversight of the, the police in Chicago. That's been something that has been discussed for years here. It's something Mayor Lightfoot campaigned on. And uh, just this week, there were two uh, new versions of, of kind of competing proposals for civilian oversight that were introduced to the city council. Um, and I think that will be a conversation uh, that lasts, you know, many months into this year. But if the, the council and the mayor are ultimately able to come to some sort of agreement over what that civilian oversight looks like, I think that'll be a big first step as far as starting to restore some trust in the community um, for the police department. Um, and it would, uh, if she's successful, it would fulfill a big uh, campaign initiative of hers. Um, you know, the, the devil with this thing, these types of issues is always in the details and they're incredibly complex, but I think that will be something that we see taking up a lot of energy, you know, over the first part of this year. Um, and we'll have to see where that, where that ultimately leads. Um, and then there's another piece, which I'll maybe, um, just touch on, let, let John chime in, which is there, the city of Chicago is still under a consent decree, um, which has been, uh, the implementation on those reforms has been going extraordinarily slowly. Um, and so that also is another, um, I think, source of frustration for some of the, the folks in the community and some of the organizations working on these issues that you have a, a mayor who uh, ran on being a reformer uh, with an expertise in law enforcement. And they uh, many folks feel that they just haven't seen those reforms move fast enough or as fast as they would have liked them to see. John, kind of going off of what Pat said, talk to us a little bit about how you think this narrative on race, on police brutality, how does that, you know, putting yourself, putting the hat on of, of someone who has kind of the job you used to have in the mayor's office, how does that color decision making as they're trying to decide, you know, how do we how do we grapple with some of this stuff, uh, you know, this year in 2021? How, how does that kind of impact how these people in the mayor's office and city council do their work day to day? Well, it, it affects everything. I mean, Chicago is, um, on the one hand, Chicago is a great city. It's a city of neighborhoods, very strong neighborhood identities. And um, that's great. Um, on the other hand, it's also by, by a lot of, by, by some measures, the most segregated city, most segregated big city in America. And um, the, so unfortunately, race 
um, affects uh, all the decisions or, or most of the decisions in in City Hall. And on the one hand, um, that that's appropriate because you don't want people being, you know, um, cheated out of city resources or city services because of their race. On the other hand, you know, you hope that at some point for my for my grandchildren or my great grandchildren, at some point we we as a city and a country have have solved this issue. Um, I, I would double back to what Pat said about the police accountability board. I, I'm frankly less sanguine about it. I mean, on, on the police issues, look, there's been a game changer with um, with uh, cameras, phones, with iPhones, right? iPhones and then body cams on police. Uh, I think this has been a change uh, in our country, change in our culture. It's really exposing what's going on on a day-to-day basis. Um, I think people were outraged this past week when all the white protesters stormed the Capitol and, and only a handful were arrested. Now, I, maybe they're going to arrest some more later, but they we were basically escorted out, you know, by the police. So people are um, understandably um, furious about that. Um, so I, I think with the police department in Chicago, you have we had the independent police review accountability uh, IPRA. And that became COPA, the Civilian Civilian Office of Police Accountability. So you have COPA, you have a police board, you have an internal affairs office in the police department. You have, as Pat mentioned, a federal consent decree with a federal judge overseeing that. And the federal judge appointed a federal monitor. There's also the attorney general's office who's looked into some police issues. To me, at some point, it's less about oversight and just about a top to bottom cultural shift in the police department. And, and, and frankly, in the city too. And I, you know, that's a, that's a big, big, tall order that you know the entire country is wrestling with, as we saw this week. So, yeah, I, I think progress is being made, but there's a long way to go. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really uh, is so challenging. And I think you hit on on a lot of really important points that, like you said, a lot of cities are are grappling with, and people are thinking about all across the country. I want to end on on kind of a forward looking and and hopefully sort of optimistic note, similar question I asked uh, our colleagues who focus on Springfield. You know, as we enter this new year, 2021, uh, you know, we've lived through a, a pretty tumultuous period these last few years. And, you know, you think about the city of Chicago, we've had a president who has kind of talked about the city of Chicago in a negative light, uh, you know, pretty often. Um, John, Pat, both of you, you have chosen not only to to build your careers working in the city of Chicago on behalf of the people who who live there and on behalf of companies who do business there, you've also chosen to to live there and raise your families there. And uh, you know, you, South Side, North Side, you guys live in different parts of the cities. You have different experiences. You see different things, but you are choosing every day to to live and work in Chicago, and and to hope that that it's a better place each and every year. What do you, as you guys talk to your neighbors, uh, your clients, you know, just, just people that, that live in the city and want to see it succeed and do well, what are your kind of hopes and aspirations for, for 2021 and beyond? Uh, John, I'll, I'll start with you. So I think um, I'll double back to what Pat said earlier about the challenges facing Mayor Lightfoot. Um, covid um, COVID's going away. It's not going away quick enough, but at some point, like Pat said, vaccines are going to get rolled out and we're going to be vaccinated. So I'm hopeful about that. Um, Trump was a huge issue for Mayor Lightfoot and for every mayor and every governor and everybody. And he's, you know, one way or the other, he's gone in a couple of weeks. So I think those are two positive developments for Chicago. Um, 
I, I think we just talked about the, the race issue is not going to be solved overnight, but um, I think we're making progress in fits and starts um, on on the race issue. So I, I think there's um, I think there's cause for optimism uh, in Chicago. I, I do think that the um, that the 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 economic impacts of COVID have not been fully um, understood yet, and I think there's going to be a lot of rebuilding that's going to be done on that. And I think the city council is going to have to shift and Mayor Lightfoot's going to shift her fo- focus to creating jobs. I mean, there are a lot of people who who need jobs right now and who are getting by, but they can't get by for for years. So we're going to have to focus on creating jobs. But I think there's um, cause for optimism because two of the big problems will be gone. So I know what Pat thinks about that. Yeah, Pat, how about you? What are What are you hoping to see this year? Um, what what are what are some things you're hopeful about uh, you know for 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 our city for the city that we love? So I I well first I, I need to take issue with being categorized as a north sider. I do live north of Roosevelt Road, but only by a block. So I'm gonna count I myself. You'd, on the I knew you'd side love too. that. That's why I said it. <laughs> <laughs> but I I think it is important to not let the the very real and very significant challenges that Chicago faces, you know, overshadow its, its opportunities. Um, you know, there's a, a vibrant, you know, expanding technology sector here that that's growing and is, you know, creating a lot of jobs to John's point. It's, it's very important to try to make sure that those jobs are inclusive and that, you know, they're available to residents from all parts of the city. You're, you also have some large scale developments that were put into put into motion uh, at the very end of Mayor Emanuel's term, um, but those are going to be getting underway. They're, they're not, you know, being shelved because of the pandemic. And you're going to see a lot of construction and a, a lot of investment related uh, with both the, the Lincoln Yards and the 78 projects moving forward. And then we didn't uh, talk a lot about it, but one of uh, Mayor Lightfoot's signature initiatives has been her Invest Southwest initiative, which has been to really focus uh, with a laser-like attention on how to drive uh, investment, not just in the downtown area, which is of course going to be the engine of Chicago's economy, but to make sure that those benefits are seen out in the neighborhoods. And so I, I think there's a lot of reason for optimism. I think Chicago it was built up on the shores of Lake Michigan as a as a, a logistical and transportation hub. And I think those parts of the economy are going to continue to be important. And our location, you know, in the middle of the country, I think has a lot has a lot going for it. And so it's just a matter of getting this pandemic behind us, continuing to try to address some of the historic inequalities. Um, but overall, you know, I think there's a bright future for Chicago as we get towards the the end of this year and beyond. And it 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 will be um, just important to make sure that 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 growth is inclusive and, and touches all parts of the city, not just downtown. Stormy, husky, brawling, the city of, <laughs> of big shoulders, to quote the great Carl Sandburg. Guys, this has been fantastic. Um, very insightful from, from two uh, professionals uh, who know the city of Chicago well. Uh, I hope this has been informative for our listeners. This has been a special edition of the Beltway Briefing focused on Illinois, on the great city of Chicago. In my opinion, the greatest city in the world. Thank you to Howard Schweitzer and Mark Alderman for, for giving me a chance at the mic. And we'll look forward to, to doing this again soon. John, Pat, thank you guys so much for, for being on. Thank you. Thank you.